Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community. The goal of this podcast is to cover various subjects related to MedTech to position professionals like yourself for success. And today we explore artificial intelligence and ultrasound with our guest, Hilla Goldman Aslan. CEO of DIA Imaging Analysis. There is a lot of learning for professionals in this episode. DIA Imaging Analysis is a company founded by three women. The other two co-founders are Mikhail Jacobi and Dr. Noah Leal Cohen. We explore Hilla's career and what positioned her for MedTech leadership, the founding, growth, and challenges Faced by Dia, Hilla's view of the future of AI and medtech, and key learnings for medtech professionals. This is a story of imagination, determination, and persistence. In the show notes, I will have links to Hilla's LinkedIn profile and the Dia Imaging Analysis website. And if you like this podcast, simply share it with a friend using the share link on your podcast player of choice. For those of you that want to know more about the MedTech Leaders community, simply go to medtechleaders.net. It is time for you to meet Hilla and learn more about an AI startup and its journey to success. Hilla. It is great to have you on the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for inviting me. We've got a lot to talk about. You know, I've had a number of episodes on artificial intelligence, and then you and I talked, and I thought, wow, this is very interesting. <laughs> we we <laughs> have to keep going. So there's um, there's a lot to talk about here. But first, just tell us about who you are, what your role is, and a little bit about DIA. So uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of DIA Imaging Analysis. Uh, I established the company together with uh, three uh, co-founders. We are three, actually, women founders, and one in a minority uh, position joined us uh, as a founder when we established the company. And all we are doing since we were established is to try and helping ultrasound users analyze ultrasound images in a much more automated way versus the visual way they are doing it today and take the subjectivity out of the analysis process as much as possible. Very good. Great explanation. So let's just start with a story. Um, I always like to start a little bit of a story before we get into a lot of the details. So like a real life story about AI or the lack of AI and what it means to a patient, um, you know, and their diagnosis. So what, what we saw uh, during the last years uh, developing AI solution and, you know, people are saying AI, but basically what we are saying is smart automation, right? Yeah. Because uh, we we're trying to, to make not only things automated, but also think in a smart way that are fit to a specific situation. And that's where AI is, is, is coming in and we see it in various uh, areas. So one example I can I, uh, we identify and, and we are handling and, and trying to address is that, for example, we, are, we have a package of AI solution in the cardiac space, cardiac ultrasound space. And what we saw is that, you know, a lot of patients coming to do a full echo exam and um, sonographers and echocardiographers handling a massive amount of data that they need to analyze and identify and measure all kinds of measurements. And eventually what happened is that because there's time limitation, not always they have access to automated solutions in all of the devices that they're using. And it's really time consuming to do all those measurements. So they're pick and choosing who to do measurements for. So basically not all echo patients 
are having access to very um, key measurements, critical measurements sometimes that are available, but because of the time issue that they need to measure and, and also the training they need to do to do it and the accessibility of it, they're just picking a specific group of patients and doing that. And what we saw that this is where AI can, can jump in and say, okay, we can do the whole exam measurements and analysis once the images are being acquired and then more patient will have more access to those key analysis measurements and automated uh, uh, abnormality finders, which today they are not getting access to. And physician will have more information, clinical information that can make help them make better decision through the um, uh, decision process. So that's okay. where we saw a very big gap and we see it in many, many uh, places within ultrasound. Okay, so that's great. Great way to start. So let's go back in a little bit. Let's talk about you for a few minutes and let's talk about your education, your career. Um, if we go back to your education, you started out as studying law. So what got you interested in studying law? <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, actually in Israel, we we also go to the army before. Okay. So uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so so that's uh, after serving the army. Then I I I didn't know really what to go and study uh, in my uh, academic education, and basically I, I said that there was a program that was that combining business and law, and that was uh, like a dual program, dual uh, BA. Uh, and I say, okay, let, let's start there because I, I, I'm business oriented, but law school seems like a very good education and something that maybe I can evolve into. It was always clear that even when I'm, I'm studying law and practicing law after, it will be around the business or, or commercial uh, arena, not criminal law, not anything, family law, and all, only around the, the business oriented uh, arena. So I said, okay, let's do two uh, BAs at the same time uh, and then decide what happened next. Uh, so I study uh, commercial law and business uh, at the same time. And uh, when I finished, I, I, I practiced uh, law uh, for, I think, less than two years. Uh, and the office that I, I was practicing was all about tech companies, uh, IPOs, uh, investment agreements, so, sometimes being on the side of the investors, sometimes in the side of the tech company, uh, doing all kinds of commercial agreements, participating in board meetings, and going through IPO process. And that's where I realized that I want to be on the other side of the table and not on the legal side of the table. Uh, and that was a great school for me. Uh, and that's where I decided, yeah, I, I need to move to the other side. Okay, and I have to ask you because what did you what did you do in the army? So I was in the air force, mm -hmm. uh, but I can't tell, talk too much about my my service. Okay, uh, but I can tell you that I saw a lot of uh, F sixteen and F fifteen going around. Okay, because I remember visiting uh, Israel years ago, and um, first of all. I worked with an Israeli company, so I was, I was the U.S. Um, leader of operations, the president of the U.S. operations for an Israeli company, and uh, part of that meant I had to go to Israel, and I was so impressed with the people at this company, all of whom have, had served, because I guess that's a requirement in Israel, um, unless you're of some religious background. And um, when I was in Israel, you would see frequently, uh, some, I, I guess especially the Army youngsters, I want to call them youngsters, but anybody that can have a bullet fly by their head as an adult, I suppose. But they'd be running to the bus like there it was the weekend and they were running to go do their drills and they had the AR-15s across their back and they're they're trying to get on the bus and they're all over the place. And it was just so impressive yes. how how mature these young people are that have served um uh, and the people at the company I worked with, they were really delightful to work with. And I think some of that maturity and that ability to make decisions and stuff came from their service. Definitely. Um, I think that's a part of the uniqueness of uh, 
the ecosystem here and the startup ecosystem here in Israel. It's part of the culture when you're serving. On one hand, you get, you, you get mature very quick. On the other hand, you get a lot of responsibility in a very yes. young age. And that's to give you another, like a different perspective going out. And, and, and in terms of managing thing, things, managing teams, being responsible for one another, team players, you need to, to be part of that. And you learn how to do it very quickly when you're serving the army. And that's a good foundation going forward. Yeah, I remember, in fact, uh, I won't take this too much further, but when I worked for a company in California, a U.S. company, um, there was a young man um, back in the manufacturing area that um, he, and I just was, he's so mature for his age. And when he and I were talking one day, he served on a U.S. aircraft carrier and he was loading bombs on airplanes. He was helping to supervise the teams that, that loaded the uh, aircraft with weapons, bombs, including he was responsible for nuclear um, so um, yeah, he was. It was impressive. Wow. Anyway, just that's just an aside, but it is something that I've really noticed in the Israeli culture is these young people that are really um, team players, focused, mature, and so on. So let's let's go back to you a little bit. And so we understand how you went through. You were doing commercial school, law school. You got on the law side, you saw the commercial side, and you thought, that's where I'm going to be. I want to be on the commercial side. What attracted you to med tech and biotech? Because that's really where you've spent your time. Yeah. So uh, I, I didn't intend to go to this space. I think that Israel is a very um, great hub for everything related to uh, the medical side, digital health, medical device, biomed. You know, there is a, a great hub here for and a lot of startups startup in this space. And I think that uh, through uh, my career and initially how I got to, to get to know the, the other co-founders uh, of DIA is because um, at that time, I think a lot of new startups came up in, in that space and specifically in the digital health area. So it, it wasn't like I, I, I decided that's like the area that I want to expert and, and find my way in. It was more of that came along through the exploration that I did around innovation and, and, and eventually meeting my co-founder, uh, which uh, she's the, the one that invented the technology when she was in the university. And the commercial office of the university is the one that connected with, between us because she was from the tech side and nothing to do with business, investment, uh, you know, all sales, marketing and things uh, around that and looking for a partner. And, and the person there would say, okay, I know somebody that maybe you should get to know. And that was, I always say, love in first sight <laughs> that we got together and say, okay, we complement each other. Yeah, we, we should work together. And that was like how I, I got to know Michal, my, the co-founder of the company that invented this technology. And then we brought Dr. Liel, who is the head of one of the biggest Ecolabs here in Israel, and Arnon that coming from more of the um, commercial side and, and teamed up and built an established DIA. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So the inventor, what is her name again? Michal. 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 Yeah. Michal. So she was at the university. She invented it at the university. So did the university own some of the um, the IP because of that? So there is a, a guidelines in all of the universities here in Israel that uh, initially, uh, yeah, they have some ownership on, on uh, invention, especially when it's a, a, as part of master degree and not uh, the BA degree, uh, the bachelor degree. Uh, and usually they have a certain time that they can commercial uh, invention that came out of students. Uh, and if that time ends, they have to transfer their the rights to the invention to the inventor and they can do whatever they want. So I met Michal at that stage. So at that stage, there wasn't any ties to the university. Uh, and that was very, we were very lucky, but even though uh, usually they're not so much involved, they have a certain percentage in terms of equity and that's uh, or kind of royalties going forward, not a very big one. 
Um, and that's working very, very good in Israel and, and a lot of innovation coming from the university. Okay. And then what were you doing like when somebody said, I think there's somebody you should meet to Mikhail, um, what were you doing at that time? So at that time I was uh, in between, I, I would say jobs or, or looking for a new uh, way to get into uh, and create a new startup. Uh, before that, I worked uh, as um, I ran a few incubator programs uh, in Israel. There, there's a lot of incubators and incubating uh, new ideas, things that, you know, in 95% of the time are not evolving to anything. Right. <laughs> and at that, at that stage, I knew several uh, commercial offices in several hospital uh, universities and basically called them and say, you know, guys, I'm in between things. I'm looking for the next thing to, to, to lead and to create. And then came a lot of offers. Uh, but eventually, you know, with, with Michal and the team, it was like, okay, that's what I want to do. Okay, okay. That, so now we have the whole connection there. Yeah. So a little bit more about the, the founding of the, of the company and the technology how did McCall see you know, she's in school? How did she see this as an opportunity? Was she, did did she have a a family member that had a problem? Did was she already in? Had she had some medical training? What was her background and connection to ultrasound and and you know smart type of technology? So um, at the university where she studied. The hospital, one of the biggest hospitals in Israel, right, is just across the, the street. And she was studying biomedical engineering. And okay. the connectivity between and the relationship between the university and this department with physicians in all kinds of departments was very tight. So she got to know Dr. Liel, who is the head of the echocardiography unit. And as part of those introductions that they had in several uh, units and words in the hospital, that's where she, you know, they got each other uh, acquainted. And also Dr. Leo was her mentor as part of the program uh, in the university. And that's where Dr. Leo came in on and said, you know, at the Ecolab, you know, I'm going home at evening. And when I'm coming back at the, at the morning and see what the young, you know, echocardiographers and interns and decided to do based on visual estimation. I'm like, what did you see that I, I, I don't understand why, why you decided what, what the things that you decided to do based on visual estimation. And, and she came in and say, why, why, why don't we have automated software solution that can help and, 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 you know, make things more objective versus subjective indication, because she's saying, you know, I'm, I'm 20, I have experience in over 20 years, but those young ones need to train their own AI to get to a point that they can do visual estimation. And even myself and my colleagues are getting into an argument about what we are seeing in the picture because I was trained in a certain way because I, I was studying in Boston and other places in the world. And my colleague was you know, studying in different environment and everything by you know, looking at the images and training your own brain and AI uh, of, on what to, to find and identify. So how come we can't have something very automated that will standardize, and then we can connect the dots. It's not replacing us. It's just giving us things that are more objective. So okay. that's where it started, and that's where Michal said, okay, you know, we, I, I believe that you know, we, we can do that. Let, let's try with one thing and, and start in one cardiac area and see how it evolves. And at the time that I met Michaela, she already had a prototype. Uh, and, and that was where talking with her and, and with Dr. Liel is where we say, okay, yeah, we, we, there is a big need here. And, you know, cardiac ultrasound is only the start of it. And, and definitely that is something that, you know, technology now can, can evolve and, and provide. And one thing I want to make clear to the listeners is when Hilla says um, people had to train their own AI. That means train their own brain by by ex their own personal experience. So it's not like AI was being used by those people. <laughs> they, they had to learn it themselves, you know, learn through experience how to interpret these images. And, but even then experienced people 
have difficulty agreeing on what they're on what they're seeing. Um, about what time was this? What year was this that that um, she and the doctor had met? I think it was the early 2010. Wow. Okay, 2010. So, 12 years ago. Okay. And then, um, at what time um, is Michal and or you, Michal, getting together? So it was a pretty, so, so she got to know her even before because the studies was before, but, you know, saying and already planning to do something with that was later on. And around that time, I think that was the same time that I met Michal and we, we, we decided to go for it. We started when we applied for an incubator program, which was, I came from that space and knew that we can get government funding. So initially, the first few years, it's more was more of playing with a, I call it with a shoebox, uh, with a prototype and see like what we can do with that. And again, in all those incubator programs, like 95% of them, nothing evolved. And the right. government still continue to inve- invest in that because, you know, we were saying Israel is a startup nation. And part of it is that the government investing a lot in innovation. And it's okay to to fail, and it's okay to try again and again. And, and the culture is failing is part of the process, right. and, and and you should try again and again until you you get it. Uh, one company, another company, one innovation, another innovation. But that's the culture. That's how we are being raised here. And um, so basically, that's what we tried to do. We say, okay, let's let's play with it a little bit. Get some government funding. And after I think three three years actually playing with this and, and trying to get something out of it, we were successful to get our first FDA approved solution. By now we have eight F- FDA approved solution. Um, and that's where, you know, it was about, I would say six years ago, it's where we said, okay, now we are ready to raise money, go to investors and, and go out there. And since that point until now, and we are about 40 people in the company. We have eight FDA-approved solutions, and we partnered with more than 10 channel partners like G and Philips and other companies that are using our AI solution as part of their devices. Okay. Now, I want to go through some of that and unpack it a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so one thing I want to point out is the proximity of the school and the hospital and the close working relationship between a a bioengineering department and, and the hospital system. And I think what's important for listeners to think about is what that means to a company like anywhere in the world is you have to get your engineers, uh, people that are problem solvers in amongst the physicians that have the problems and the clinicians, whether it's a physician or a nurse or a group of people in a hospital or a clinical setting, you have to get these people in proximity together so that they can share information and engineers can offer solutions. And um, I just don't think that when I, when I look back at my career, I just don't think I saw engineers traveling enough. They were not in the operating rooms. They were not in the hospital floors because doctors will work around things, but that that could be a product. That workaround could be a product. And in this case, it's, you know, you need more, you need something to help you go through all this information you have to come up with better solution and better information for the, um, uh, to make a diagnosis. So that's just one point I want to make. And then I think that, uh, I think that uh, your point here is, is super important because I can tell you that it, at our company, all of the engineers are working very closely with our physicians and clinical specialists mm-hmm. on a daily, weekly basis. So they need to see what the physicians are seeing. They need to understand in a, in, in a very clinical way, what is the problem that they are trying to solve? And if there's not alignment between them, they cannot develop something that will be really solving a clinical issue. And you can see the discussions here. And again, daily, weekly basis, you see physicians and technicians, ultrasound technicians coming in and out in the office, sitting with our engineers and training them and explaining why things that are developing are good or not good for the end user. And without that connectivity, I don't think you can get a real successful product. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really super simple story on that front. But I I worked for many years in ophthalmology, and I was at this company where I was the VP of uh, sales and marketing. And one of the research engineers said, "Ted, I want to show you something." And so I went back in the engineering department, and he showed me something very simple. It's just the chin rest that you put your chin on when you're in front of an instrument about to be diagnosed in an eye doctor's office. And we needed to uh, have the option of applying a chin rest to this one device that we had. And he showed me this chin rest. And I immediately could see the problems in the design. And so I looked at him and I said, have you ever spent a day in an ophthalmologist's office or an optometrist's office and watch them examine people and watch them use the various devices that have chin rests? He said, no, (laughs) he'd been in for an exam. He had his own eyes examined, but he had never spent even a day. And I said, that's the first thing you need to do because I can see some problems with this. And I went on to explain it, but that's just an example of how uh, some people can be stuck in their, in their silos, but that's very good. I'm impressed with that. So you started around 2010. Ben, you're saying in three years you had a uh, a working product that you could go to the FDA with and get clearance? Mm-hmm. That's that's the, what we did. And we were, I think, three or four people in the company at that stage. And how many, how long did that clearance take to get? So, you know, initially, you know, after the, the first time usually takes more time. Yeah. But because you are in the digital health software world, um, it's not like you're doing an invasive device that you have to do the three phases and do a very big clinical study. It ca- it's only eventually a matter of months. And it's really depends how well you are prepared uh, to the discussions with the FDA. And, and, and you have to have good advisors, uh, regulatory advisors to guide you what the FDA is looking for when submitted such a submission um, relating to software automation and so forth. So, uh, so initially it was uh, less than a year at the first time. And then it got shortened because we, we gained experience about how to work with the FDA. So at the eight time, it, it probably took a few months versus less than a year. So was that first um, uh, FDA application, was it de novo? No, no. We had a predicate device. Like we, we, we can point to a predicate device. And, and that was part of the, um, the success of getting the FDA approval in that uh, period of time. Uh, because usually the Nova take more more time. Yeah, it certainly does. And the and and this involves some uh, deep learning application to the image processing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's terrific. That's impressive. So that's around 2013. But you said, and so you got that FDA clearance at that time. But it's around 2016 that you thought that you're ready to be commercial. Why that time difference there? No, no, no. Actually, around 20, I would say 14 is where okay. we got our first FDA approval. Okay. And that's where the time that we we started to say, okay, we have something here. And, and also, again, at that time, and that, that's the big change that I'm seeing with AI uh, going back then and now. Because back then, even when we started to pitch uh, ultrasound companies, physicians, you would you would hear something like, you know, with from physician, it was I can do everything by eyeballing, I don't need anything. Yeah. And yeah. with the industry, you would hear none invented here. We can do everything ourselves. We don't need anybody else. Right. <laughs> only when we we only when we started like getting the first FDA, then they look at it and say, okay, this is serious. Like we, we should look what, what's going on in here. And you know we we were we were very early to the market back then. Like AI was not picking up at that those years. And then few years later, when you know they start like like everybody started to, to talk about like whispering, what is AI? What's going on with AI? This is when we started to get, and then we got more products. And then that's where the time we when the conversation started 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 to change. Suddenly, the industry said, okay, now it's not that easy to, to do everything by ourselves. Maybe we should talk with third party and see like, how, we can, how we can cooperate. 
And then physicians from the other side, we, we started to say, okay, wait, 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 wait. Initially, we thought this is going to replace us. Now I can see the value, how like, I can use that and to do things more quickly, more efficient. And I uh, participated in the panel discussion where there was a head of the imaging uh, uh, department for, of one of the biggest hospitals in, in, in Israel. And one of the, the, the mediators asked like, how do you see AI in five years from now? And he was like, I'm not optimistic. And, and wh- why you are not optimistic? Because right now, from one company, I'm getting two indication, and from the other company, I'm getting three indication. But at our playbook, we need 100. And I don't see that happening fast enough for me to enjoy whatever, like the whole playbook and all the things that I need to do on a daily basis. And then she refers to me and said, what do you think about this answer about not being optimistic about AI and imaging? And I said, you know, five years ago, you would have told me I don't need it. I do everything by myself. Not, not, now, not only that you're saying that you use it, you're just, you're saying, I, I need more and I want it faster. So that's the big change that we saw from the time that we just started and knocking on doors and getting no's until now that it's like, bring us more. That, right. That's the big change. And what was your... What was that first commercial success? Was it, um, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, was it with a partner or did you come out with your own product? So in, in all cases, we're coming with our own product. And then okay. we, we, we um, decided that, you know, as a, a small company from uh, the Middle East, we do not want to start by selling direct and knocking on doors and say, here we are, take us, especially with this new technology called AI that the you know that they were skeptical initially even today they you know they they want to they don't know how to choose between companies and we say you know we better go in through big partners like G and Philips and IBM and Conica Minolta change healthcare and so forth and I can go on and on with the partners that we are working with because when you're coming through that big logos after they validated our technology after they tested it and coming to their customer and saying, okay, guys, we have now an AI solution that we can add on to either your ultrasound devices or healthcare IT systems. And those partners are working with us and we validate that and it's working and, and you should use it. And it's part of the same agreement. That's uh, for our, our perspective was it the easiest way getting in. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying easy, nothing is easy. <laughs> yes. But still, you know, from our perspective, that was the, the way to go. And the first success, I think, was the, the first partnership that we signed up with GE with their handheld ultrasound devices that, you know, was very um, innovative and, 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 and all those handheld devices started getting into the market. And I think that that was the first check that we said, OK, we're starting to get traction. And about what year was that? I think it was 2018 or 2018. Yeah. So you had your clearance, your first clearance in around 2013, and you had your first real commercial um, agreement in 2018. So yeah. So from 2010 to 2018, so eight years. Yeah, yeah. It was again very early to the market initially, but by the time we we got the first agreement, commercial agreement, we had already four FDA approved solution. Right. So, because part of the part of the uh, feedback that we got, you know, you cannot sell only one thing. You have to have a bundle of things. You have to have all set of cardiac solution. We started in cardiac solution. So back then, and again, it, it was very. If we think about it, until I, I would say 2015, we didn't raise real money from investors. That's the time when we raised money, got into the market. And got the first traction in terms of commercially, and I think also there was at that stage and time a change in the ultrasound space, and what we call now point of care ultrasound devices and activity came out around 2015. Mm-hmm. That we saw the big change and the expansion of ultrasound, not only to the dedicated ultrasound unit, but also to the point of care setting, emergency room, ICU, intensive care, paramedics, primary care physicians starting to use ultrasound. 
And with that great initiative came, okay, using ultrasound, but they're not, you know, um, radiologists. They're using it as a triage and they need automation. And that's where AI is, and automation can bring great value. So I think that, that we were early to the market, but then the market changes. And, and when the market changed and, and then we saw the demand, we were there already with the FDA-approved solution. So right. I think that's the, the big change. And from that point until now, like things were moving very fast. Yeah, so you had a little bit of uh, change in the marketplace that benefited you. But at the same time, you benefited that change because if, if they wouldn't have the additional information that you provide to help make a decision, um, they couldn't, it wouldn't, uh, the, the ultrasound market couldn't expand as rapidly. So yeah. the, the two things sort of go together. Um, uh, what kept you going during those eight years? Like, like before your first commercialization, what kept the, you and your team, um, uh, motivated and and knowing that you had something that was going to succeed a lot of people would give up <laughs> uh, i think that's part of uh, being in the um, startup uh, business uh, probably you have to have those genes that uh, enable you to ignore no and you get a lot of no during yeah. that time especially in the first few years um, but you know with every no uh, and that's, again, a set of mind that you are starting to develop. Uh, you know that the next one probably will say yes. And, and I think that in between things are happening, like you're getting the feedback from the physician. Suddenly you're getting FDA approval. Suddenly you're getting a great study that's being published. Suddenly one company saying, yeah, we, we want to work with you. And, and, and another investor come and say, okay, that's starting to get interesting. So I think that through through these years, you know, I'm I think you have to be very persistent and and again being able to have this ability to ignore no's. And and I heard one founder saying that to raise money, in average, you have to meet with 150 investors. <laughs> So until you hit this 150, and maybe you're lucky and, and, and you can close it before, and it really depends on the times and, and the, the trends of that time. But yeah, you have to be patient, cons- be consistent, and, and be able to, to ignore no. Okay. And then plus you were seeing these things come out, like the papers, and the, you were seeing things that, that sort of validated, validated your efforts as you're moving forward and, and continue to help motivate you. So um, that that's really terrific. So tell us what was the thing that convinced GE? I mean, what, what was it that GE said, okay, we're doing this. Can you, do you remember that? First, I, first of all, I think that we got them crazy because we, we were nagging them all, like for years, even okay. before, like right, every well, few good. months, so every, yeah, every every conference, every meeting, every interaction, it was, you know, guys, this is what you should do. You know, guys, you should you should check this. You know, guys, this is the next big thing in, in, in technology. And you should be the first one to, to adopt it. And I think eventually it, it came through a, around, you know, they, they saw the they, they saw the changes in the market in terms of their traction and the and need and and the demand for handheld ultrasound devices. And on the other hand, they saw also the the gap of those new users, you know, struggling to analyze images uh, in a right way in that setting because they are not like expert echocardiographers. And when we came along and say, you know, that can work on that environment because we were the first uh, company in the world at that stage and even now, to saying, you know, we can use AI on the device on a very low and limited memory and processing environment like a handheld device. And I think the technology uh, innovation that they saw that combined with the fact that a point of care ultrasound was starting to pick up, that was a a win-win situation. 
Do you, do you think, did any key opinion leaders help you out with this? I mean, were there? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Right. So help influence Definitely. them. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. That was part of it. And again, once they, they started to, to even ask their own expert, like how about having that kind of solution on your handheld device? The answer was always, yeah, that, that mm -hmm. I would love to have something like that. So how many years was this relationship with GE before they adopted the technology? How many years? Like, was it two, three years that you were talking to them? So I, I think that, you know, my recommendation to any tech company, even when you don't have a product or starting to develop a product, always be in touch with the industry yeah. and your potential partners. Because as soon as they, they know you and you're starting to build this relationship, it's starting to get easier. Don't wait for the FDA. Don't wait for the product to be ready. Just before that, way before, even when you design it, you know, it's, 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 it gives you so much information and they can help you so much in terms of how to develop the product, what is the needs, what they're seeing in the market. And building those relationships are, are critical to eventually, um, um, you know, create those relationships and, and, and close a, eventually a commercial agreement down the line. So as early, from my perspective, it, it should be as early as when you start a company. So really... You and your team were talking to people over a long period of time. Uh, so a lot of persistence is required there. Not only persistence in raising money, but persistence on the commercial side to promote your the potential of your solution and get them involved, get them talking. Um, that That's terrific. Um, I have to give you guys a lot, a lot of credit. It's a lot of hard work. I've been in a few startups, so I'm a little bit familiar with with those those types of struggles. And we talked about some of the commercialization uh, challenges that your partners have. And now you, when you and I talked, you talked about having two ways to um, that you commercialize. And so there's the DIA products and there's the DIA partners. And what we've talked about so far is how you initially commercialized via a DIA partner, and that first partner was GE. Um, now you've got lots of partners um, as people you know, understand the potential of your products and they want to benefit from them. What about your the DIA products? What are those? Tell us about those. So um, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm separating between the two. Um, the products are the same products. It's that okay. just how you, how you eventually bring them to the market and to the end users, which eventually are the physicians and the clinics and the hospitals. I think that uh, our products, uh, if we take, uh, for example, our cardiac solution, when the setting is point of care setting, everything needs to be done on the device itself near the bedside of, of patients. So we do need the cooperation and the partnership of, with the device companies in order to be there on the device while they're scanning and need the result right away. They will not go to a workstation. They will not do an, uh, you know, post-processing analysis. They, they need to have it right now while they're scanning. Versus when we are offering our solutions and our cardiac package to the echocardiography uh, business unit or, or the echo labs, then there is a real separation in the workflow between the acquisition of the images by the, the sonographers and the analysis that's being done on the workstation by the echocardiographers going through the images and, and writing the report. And those two, like as part of this workflow, in between the scanning and the analysis and, and the evaluation, we are running our algorithm on those images because it's not happening at the same time. And we have time to analyze those images. And once the physician are, are at the workstation looking at those images, the AI already been there, done that, and, and can provide the results. And this is how we can provide and make those analyses accessible to a lot of patients that usually are not getting those uh, uh, measurements and uh, key uh, indication in a, in an ordinary way, way. Now, at that setting, we can sell direct, and we are starting and doing that. But we also found out that working with the PAX company, IT companies that are basically building this infrastructure and software uh, viewers, 
you know, we can have faster attraction into the market. So the products are the same product, both in the point of care market, as well as on, on Ecolabs. It's just a way of how we distribute it, who we are partnering with to get faster into the market, and what is the business model that we want to address. Um, and going forward, you know, we are expanding also to other anatomic areas. It's not only cardiac because, you know, the basic AI technology that we developed can apply to different anatomic areas. It's not limited to a certain anatomic area. So we are going to leverage the know-how, experience, and technology that we developed to, you know, expand and scale because, you know, we have so much work to do in the ultrasound space and so many, so much automation that is needed that, you know, we're just scratching the surface uh, of, of, of the things that needs to be done. And I want to talk more about that scratching the surface comment in a, in a second. So what medical specialties? So you started out in cardiac. Or, um, what, else, what other medical specialties have you begun to work in? So we expanded to the abdominal area. Basically, mm -hmm. what we are trying to do is to expand where our users are already are in using our solutions. So at the point of care, they're using our cardiac solutions. Now we are going to expand to other anatomic areas that they are looking at the point of care setting. In the cardiology space, at the Ecolabs, they are using our AI solution. We're expanding to other areas that they are looking at within the cardiac space. So basically it's expanding in the circles that we are already have a present. So, you know, it will take time before we will cover everything. Uh, so the way to do it is step-by-step step around areas that we already have a present and, and we can, uh, how we call land and expand our solution. Okay. And one of the things that we talked about early on in this conversation was the benefit to the patient, to the practitioner, and therefore to the patient in terms of evaluating. You know, one of the things that we've talked about um, in some of the podcasts and continue to talk about is value-based care. So have you seen any statistics, any economic um, type of uh, statistics that indicate the value to hospitals in, in terms of patient readmissions or uh, money saved, you know, patients saved? Have you seen any data related to the AI in your products? Definitely. That's uh, something actually that that's the main talk, I think, right now. You know, I'll be happy to share also some of the studies that uh, we was already published around that. The biggest thing that uh, you're hearing a lot of hospitals and imaging centers talking about is the lack of healthcare professionals. And that's across the line. And specifically in the imaging space, you see less technicians and sonographers, less radiologists, and the short of, of personnel, it's like, they saying it's it's going up 20% every year, which means lack of people, 20% of, of, of work professionals are, are just going and not, not coming back and going to other areas. And there's not enough new ones that are coming in. So with that main concern, hospitals and clinics are trying to do much more with what they have or do much more with less. And part of that is creating more automated processes. And that's where AI is stepping in and, and bringing those solutions to just automate a lot of the processes that you know, nobody can do and nobody can eventually uh, can handle. That's massive amount of data. The, the number of procedures, especially in the imaging space due to aging population and so forth, just going up. And the lack of personnel is going down. So like not enough personnel and, and people. So how do you balance between them? How, how do you solve that? And that's part of it is, is, is bringing more AI and automation. And we talked about AI being a smart automation and to, the, to the, that workflows. And, okay. and you see, I just wrote, read a study saying that a big survey with the radiologists came out and and asking about the adoption of AI, and it's increased by 30% in the last year of, of AI adoption in, in the radiology space. And so definitely, I think that that's where the market is, is going. And you see the economic value everywhere, you know, doing more scans and getting more reimbursement by, by doing more scans. 
um, uh, saving more accuracy, less uh, you know, patient coming back because they're well early diagnosed and, and treated. So it's, it's, you know, you see a lot of stockholders um, seeing the advantage, the economic advantage from those AI solutions. Okay. And then how big is your company now? When you started, there were four of you. And now how many, or there are three of you. And now how many people do you have on the team? We are about 40 people in the company and growing. Good. That's great. Okay. Yeah. So a minute ago, you just, you talked about the future of artificial intelligence and healthcare and medtech. And, and you said we are just scratching the surface. Could you t- talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, I, I can talk about that in the like in the ultrasound space, but it's really yeah. in, in, in all of the imaging, medical imaging space. Um, when you look at every anatomic area that ultrasound is there, and it's really huge, like you can scan almost any anatomic area with ultrasound today. Right. Most of the analysis processes are vi- still visual. From the easiest thing to the mo- most difficult thing. And when I'm saying we're stra- scratching the, the surface right now, when we are prioritizing what to do next, we're looking at the most urgent and complicated and very hard to do areas. But when I'm talking with the physicians and especially the new generation of physicians that grew up with technology and yeah. with the iPhones and with the mobile and trust technology, they're basically saying to me, I need everything to be automated from the easiest thing that I can do in three seconds to the hardest thing that I can like taking me minutes or, or more than that. And from their perspective, everything that is relating to subjective workflow should be objective and automated. Now, initially when AI came on, you know, a lot of physicians and, and radiologists say maybe that will replace me. But they are not thinking that way today because they are seeing that, you know, we need to have objective information and then we can connect the dots because it's very similar to having a a device that measure your temperature. You don't want to put your hand here and say, I know, 100. You want to to have a device to say, what is the temperature? And if it's 98, maybe it's wonderful because in the last three days you were at 100. But maybe it's terrible because it's a small, like athletic person, child that that now suffering from something that you need to detect what it is. But you want to have this 87, 89 exact number. And that's go with all the things that are going within medical imaging and and especially in ultrasound. You want everything that today you are doing subjectively, manually to be automated. Then I can connect the dots and look at the blood test and sit with the patient and hear what happened yesterday that you fall down, fell down and connect the dots and, and be a real, like use your training as a physician to connect those dots. Right. Now I'm not saying that in decades or more, there will be also AI that can help connect the dots. But when I'm saying scratching the surface, let's first start with automating all the things that we're doing subjectively, manually, visually then we can think about connecting the dots. Well, it's just like in Star Trek. You still have bones, right? (laughs) Except he has the tricorder, right? He figures it out with a tricorder. Yeah. For other med tech professionals, how should medical device companies be participating in the shift to AI enhanced type of health care? I think they're doing it already. I think that uh, part of every medical device uh, company discussions on their weekly meetings is how we can embed AI and where AI is uh, uh, coming in place uh, with our devices, with our workflows, with our offering to our physicians. Yeah, I think that that, that that's important. But uh, when you look at uh, small to medium-sized companies, I'm, I'm talking about zero sales to $150 million in sales. That's what I'd say is medium. Okay. Different people, different people have different definitions. But my experience has been there's, uh, some of those, um, the management of those org- organizations can be somewhat closed-minded compared to Philips or GE or Medtronic, where they have uh, really deep, uh, benches of smart people that are looking at all this future stuff 
to understand how it's going to take the company. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I just want to make sure that med tech professionals think about what you just said. How does their product interface with the whole workflow that might be associated with AI? So it might, it might not have AI so much in the product itself, but it might be providing data to the AI. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's where some companies, they don't have the imagination to understand where they can fit in to this process and they think, oh, I just got a gadget, so there's no AI involved. Well, that might not be true. Yeah. Okay. Um, do we need a different kind of med tech leader to under, to understand and incorporate AI in and around their products? That's a tough question. And because what I'm seeing happening with physicians and changing generation, you're already seeing it in the med tech management teams. Mm -hmm. And you, you cannot afford to be a manager today or executive in those companies if you are not thinking innovation and what is next and how how we are not you know missing the the the, the train that it's out there and joining and being part of it. So from, from my perspective, I would I would say that the conversations that I'm having with medical device companies and really shifted between, I would say, 10 years ago and now. Also in terms of changing generation of management and managers, mm -hmm. as well as the understanding that, you know, things happen, especially with AI, and we cannot afford not to be there. So they're actually trying, as you mentioned, to find a way. And even if we are a hardware company, what is that our data is doing for AI? How we can be part of something bigger that can bring value to our patients? So I think it's it's mainly the change in both generation, but also the understanding that you always need to be innovative in in your in your roadmap, in your discussions, and, and know what's going out there. So the older generation, people like me need to be listening to the younger generation, um, the people below them that are saying, this is what's happening. They really need to listen and take this seriously. I mean, because I've learned so much from all these interviews that I've done for uh, related to AI, and I've been sort of blown away. And maybe I'm in my own little silo, but um, I got I, I sort of know that there are a lot of other managers that are older that aren't um, as flexible. Any advice that you have... Um, relative to uh, preparation, like um, ways to be prepared, courses, books, um, newsletters, anything people should be reading or? Yeah, I think people should listen to podcasts like that. Okay. And uh, more, and, and also put like any, you know, in, in podcast information, interviews uh, of, um, from there, like every every company from or, or founder or uh, initiative uh, at that space, I think it's very important uh, from a startup perspective uh, at the early stage to surround yourself with a lot of mentors and advisors uh, that can you know provide their own experience. I'm not saying every advice to say, yeah, I should do that. Uh, basically, a lot of the, a lot of the times that we are asking for advice, we know the answer. We just want to have somebody saying, "Yeah, I did that. It worked. You should do that." <laughs> uh, in the in in small in 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 not a lot of cases, you are actually hearing something that you didn't know, and then it can change your way of thinking. But basically, you know, you're trying to get those validations and 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 from more experienced uh, people, you know. Try not to make mistakes, but you will always make mistakes, and it's part of the process, and that's that's fine. And it's just listen, get advice, learn a lot, like hear podcasts, and, and where the, the at your specific space where the market is going. Talking, I mentioned with the industry, with your potential customers, even if you don't have a product, just talk with them, be there, hear about their pain points, get their advice, even about your UI. Uh, and how you want to present things, and yeah, I, I, that that's why my two cents on on you know going forward and, and starting startup. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. We've learned a lot, and um, I'm really impressed with what you people have accomplished, and also your patience 
but now you're growing even faster. So that's terrific. Um, Hilla, thank you very much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you have listened to several of the recent podcasts related to AI, you should see a pattern in medtech involvement in artificial intelligence. One part of this pattern is innovative companies developing or acquiring AI technology that becomes part of the product's capability, or it could be a service. Another part of this pattern is the workflows that AI resides in, where the AI relies on data produced by numerous sources, including medical devices. It is becoming more and more likely that you and your company are already participants in these patterns or very close to becoming a participant. Make sure you are at the leading edge of the discussion about how you, your products, and your services can contribute to improved outcomes and lower costs by proactively being involved in these workflows. Thank you for spending time with me and Hilla today. Now go win your week. <laughs>